Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Lois Mahog. Lois is a journalist who's written the book called The, the Savvy Insomniac, A Personal Journey Through Science to Better Sleep. And she's written this book to help understand insomnia and what can be done to help it. Thank you, Lois, for coming on today. Hi, Gary. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So um, I I stumbled across you with insomnia. And I was listening to some of the interviews that you've done. And I've got your book on Kindle now. And yeah, I I just love the information that you were sharing about the, um, the sleep disorder insomnia. And that's why I wanted you to come on today to educate people. So I think if we begin with, would you mind just explaining to people why you've got such a keen interest in in insomnia? Sure. Um, I guess I would say that I've never been a really good or long sleeper. Even when I was a little girl, uh, of course, my my sister was two years younger than I was, but my mother was putting us down to naps together, and I would find that I could never sleep. And likewise, in my four-year-old kindergarten class, when the rest of the class was sleeping in the mid-morning, I was just really wide awake and really resented having to take naps. So uh, as an adolescent, I recall slumber parties when I would be listening to my friends sawing logs and I'd be still up. And then in college is when I really started to think of it as a problem because I was uh, living in a dorm, and of course, dorms are noisy and crowded and light, and nobody's, you know, observing any kind of sleep hygiene there. And so I think it just kind of got off there. And ever since then, really, until my late 40s, I was what I would call a gorilla sleeper, sort of sleeping when I could, which wasn't that often, and wondering why was everybody else growing up and being able to sleep, whereas I was still, I felt like an adolescent, really, not able to get into any kind of a rhythm. Mm. So I thought, well, after decades of suffering with this problem, I would check into it further. Um, And that's what got me started on my research for my book. Yes, you know from a personal experience of what insomnia is like and I guess with your research that was much easier for you to relate to when you were reading all the studies and interviewing all the experts for your book. Well yes but I think that there are such a wide variety of symptoms of insomnia. For starters some people they can't get to sleep at the beginning of the night. Other people have trouble with frequent wake-ups during night, and still others wake up too early in the morning or simply feel like they haven't slept at all. So what I felt I really needed to do in the beginning was to take the journalism training that I'd had and go out and just find a bunch of different people suffering from insomnia and find out what their experience was so, uh, so I could you know, kind of decide for myself um, you know, what What are the things that most people with insomnia need to know about in order to improve their sleep? Okay. So I think that's a, a good one too to just introduce people with insomnia. Um, so how some, some of the basic symptoms and then how you actually get diagnosed with the condition of insomnia. 
okay, well, medically, uh, you have to have trouble sleeping, as I said, at the beginning, in the middle or end of the night for at least three times a week for at least three months and then suffer some type of impairment during the daytime. So that might be physical impairment. For example, you feel tired, exhausted, or lacking in stamina. Uh, it could be emotional impairment. You know, you're kind of low mood or depressed. Or on the other hand, it possibly could be that you're easy to anger. So you lose your temper a lot. And then finally, it could be also that you suffer from cognitive symptoms. You find yourself, you're just unable to think very well or to learn or to remember things. So some type of uh, trouble sleeping at night combined with some type of impairment during the day. Okay. And the diagnosis then, um, is that's just made by your family doctor or do you have to go to a sleep clinic to actually have it confirmed? No, um, actually, that's something that people uh, are are a little bit mixed up about, and it's easy to see why. We think of sleep studies. Oh, yes, we need a sleep study to diagnose uh, insomnia. Well, actually, that's not true. Um, a good uh, sleep expert can give you uh, take a personal history from you, and from your personal history, pretty much decide whether your diagnosis is insomnia or whether it might be something else such as sleep apnea or perhaps it's a circadian rhythm disorder. Um, and if sleep apnea is suspected, then you will be sent to a sleep lab to take an overnight sleep study. Okay. So that's, I guess, what I'm hearing here is that's quite a common differential diagnosis where someone, a doctor might think you've either got insomnia or you might be falling into the sleep apnea category. And we and each one is dealt differently. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. If sleep apnea is suspected, then you probably will be sent to a sleep lab to have a sleep study. Whereas if, if your diagnosis might be closer to insomnia, it would be um, sort of beside the point to go in for a sleep study because they can't really tell much more than a doctor is able to ascertain from a good sleep history. Because mm. I, you know, I, I think an easy one to think of. Maybe I, I'll need to get someone on to clarify with all the different sleep apneas. But when I think of sleep apnea, I think of someone who snores a lot, or a partner says they can hear them stop breathing in the night, and an insomnia person shouldn't be giving those kind of symptoms. A partner wouldn't report that, would they? Or they could, I guess. Maybe you could have both. It could be tricky. Well, yes, yes. There are some people with the what they call comorbid. I don't know. I, I like the term dual diagnoses better. Um, but yeah, there are some people who have both insomnia and sleep apnea. But uh, um, a person who has insomnia probably wouldn't, for example, be very sleepy during the daytime. Um, with sleep apnea, sleep is being interrupted consistently through the night. And so one one symptom of sleep apnea would be feeling very so tired that you'd be dropping off or nodding off to sleep during the day. Okay, People with okay. insomnia, on the other hand, are, are said to experience hyperarousal. So even if they haven't gotten a good night's sleep, they tend to be um, they they tend not to be dropping off during the daytime. Okay, that's interesting. So. So someone who who says they 
in a way that they struggle to sleep and they're not getting enough sleep isn't falling asleep during the day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, they do these things called multiple sleep latency tests where they give a person multiple sleep opportunities during a day, the daytime. And what they find is that if, if, if a person is suffering from sleep apnea, that person will probably readily fall asleep at all those different times. But people with insomnia are probably less likely to fall asleep during the day. Okay, fascinating. Um, so you mentioned that there's different types of insomnia. Um, I guess there's lots of them, or is there not too many? Well, what they've tried to do, because insomnia is kind of a nebulous category at this yeah. time, um, what they've tried to do is categories or, or uh, make different types of insomnia based on people's symptoms, not based on any kind of objective test that you can give to people who have insomnia. Uh -huh. Now, there is one exception to that, and that is um, taking the case of paradoxical insomnia and psychophysiological insomnia. Those are two different types. And those are often distinguished by actually sending a person into the sleep lab. There are people who might come into the doctor's office reporting that they get maybe one hour of sleep every night. Well, that would pretty much be impossible. Mm. But it's their perception that they only get one hour of sleep a night. And so if they would go in for a sleep study, more than likely, what they would find is that they're actually sleeping a full night. But it's their perception of sleeping only one hour versus the objective reading of the polysomnograph, um, which would show a huge discrepancy between their own perception and what, you know, what it looks like their brain is doing to a machine. Mm -hmm. So in that case, people would be diagnosed with paradoxical insomnia. And it's not clear um, how that develops. Um, some of the standard treatments for insomnia are not as effective usually for paradoxical insomnia. The other more common type of insomnia is called psychophysiological insomnia. And in that, uh, a person's perceptions are more likely to reflect more at, with more accuracy the actual um, objective sleep as determined by the polysomnograph. Okay, so someone who feels they're struggling to sleep and it's it seems extreme, like you said, they think, oh, I'm only sleeping an hour a night, that's the paradoxical one, that potentially, uh -huh. and then the, the psychophysiological format is when you're, you're, you're a little bit more accurate as to how much you're actually sleeping. Yeah, yeah, people are still, I mean, people with insomnia are notoriously inaccurate when it comes out to figuring mm. out how much they're sleeping, but... There is one category of, I, I think they're calling it um, short sleep, actually. When people get, say, five hours or less, sometimes short sleep is, is, um, is defined as six hours or less. But these are people who get substantially less sleep than the average person who's sleeping seven or eight hours a night. Um, and some people have described this as the most severe type of insomnia. Um, and 
I'll just let it go there. Okay. Really, really the truth is that they haven't figured out exactly the different categories of insomnia yet. Well, like you said, it's, um, it's, I guess, objectively, it's, it's difficult for them. So it's, to me, it sounds more like the psychiatric world where they have to look at uh, other types of reported symptoms um, and try try categorize someone like that. Right, yeah. right. I mean, they are doing a lot of genetic research now that will eventually hopefully lead to the different um, underlying factors in the different types of insomnia. But right now, they're not there yet. Mm, okay. And insomnia is different to a light sleeper. So someone who is easily aroused at night because they say they don't sleep deeply. Are they, mm-hmm. do they, are they actually an insomnia person or are they just a well, light sleeper? Is there a difference there? Yeah. Um, to, my, uh, to my understanding now, the non-restorative sleep category is still considered a type of insomnia, I believe. So um, there are some people that I interviewed who had gone through sleep studies and been told that they didn't get a lot of deep sleep that they always were hovering in the more in the in the lighter stages of sleep um and and those are the harder cases i think those those are for sleep experts to handle okay um if you wouldn't mind then just is there a quick way to sort of give us an um an overview of the phases of sleep so people have a reference point when you're talking about sleep oh yeah okay so um it it feels, I guess, to normal sleepers, like you just fall asleep at the beginning of the night and then you wake up in the morning. But actually, we go through about four or five different uh, different cycles a night where we're starting out, we're moving into the lighter stages of sleep and then moving into deeper sleep. And for the first half of the night, we're getting quite a bit of deep sleep. But we're always then coming back up to the lighter stages and and going into uh, REM sleep, the type of sleep that is often associated with dreaming. And then we're going back again into the lighter stage of non-REM sleep, going into the deep sleep again, and coming up into lighter phases and into REM sleep. So we get most of our deep sleep at the beginning of the night and most of our REM sleep, our dream sleep toward the end of the night. Okay. Um, and as you said, even a person with insomnia, they're not actually awake laying in bed for eight hours and only sleeping the one hour. They they are drifting off. They just don't realize it. Well, it's very interesting because um, they now have very sophisticated tests where they can kind of take movies of processes that are going on in, in people's brains. And they used to think of sleep and waking as sort of um, whole brain states where sleep was a state in which the whole brain was turned off and waking your whole brain was turned on. But now they've um, now they discovered that in people who have insomnia inside their brains, most of the brain can be sleeping and there is not evidence of lots of processing of glucose happening. But certain key points or certain key areas of the brain may still be behaving as though they're awake. So it's kind of uh, a hybrid, kind of almost a hybrid state. 
Okay. So, so yeah, I guess that's they're they're looking at that there's uh, certain sections of the brain that aren't going through the phases, that, and that's what's causing a part of the issues here. Right. So, could you just explain with that um, to people the difference between sleep quality and sweet sleep quantity? Ah, okay. Well, um, oftentimes people have the idea, you know, that we're not sleeping enough, that we're just getting our nights are too short. But, um, but it what may be the case is just that people are not experiencing a very high sleep quality. It may be the case that people are sleeping enough at night, but that their sleep quality is somehow being impaired. And so um, after a, uh, even a, well, let's see, how, how can I say this? A short night, if, if your sleep is full of deep sleep and you're getting sufficient REM sleep, even a shorter night can feel very, very good. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you go through a treatment for insomnia, it's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Um, one thing you may discover is that you don't need as much sleep as you thought you did, but what you like is getting a higher quality sleep when you are asleep. So what do you think, it, it, when you mention those phases of sleep, what, what is it that gives us the quality feeling? Well, it's often said that, or in the past, it was often said that it's that deep sleep, the amount of deep sleep that we're getting. So that first part you mentioned in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the first, uh, the deep sleep that that happens during the first part of the night. But now there's also a lot of research on the last part of the night, which is during REM sleep. And it looks like... Um, People who wake up a lot during REM sleep are not getting proper REM sleep. And that, too, can lead to the sensation of not having quality sleep. Okay. So it seems that both both types of sleep in sufficient quantity and certainly in, of high quality are necessary to make a good night's sleep. Yeah, so to, I'm just thinking in my, in my own brain now that it sounds like for us to feel like we've slept well, the, all the brain needs to go through a process and it is through the different phases of sleep that it needs to go through that process. Um, but, and there's, and the problem here is that sometimes it's not all the brain that goes through it and it doesn't maybe go through everything. And that's where we get, and that's where the quality quantity debates coming about. Yeah. I mean, there, there, I, I, I should say though that there's no objective way to me- measure quality. Yeah. Quality is a completely subjective um, judgment that we make about okay. a night's sleep. Okay, that's fascinating. So, so the sleep clinics are really just more assessing quantity and depth or the, the phases, and that's how they – Yeah, yeah, exactly. They can assess, uh, you know, the quantity of sleep. They can assess something called sleep efficiency, how much of the time that you're in bed you're actually sleeping. They can assess something called sleep onset latency, where you're assessing how long does it take a person to get to sleep, actually. They can assess many things, but they can't assess sleep quality. Okay. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. 
Um, so then talking about quality um, and I think a common one is that people might think, oh, I'm either a lark or an owl. So I'm either a morning person or a night person. Is that, do you think that's the case that we, there are morning people and night people? Oh, well, first of all, most people fall, it would fall neither in the lark area or the owl area. Most people are, you know, uh, the alternation of daylight and darkness on, on earth suits them perfectly well because they get up maybe around seven in the morning and go to bed around 11 in the evening and they're perfectly happy with the way things are set up. There are, however, some people who are, have uh, an earlier time of naturally waking up and they naturally also want to go to bed earlier in the evening. And then there are the other kind, the, the, the owls, the night owls, who really would like to sleep until 10, 10.30 in the morning and maybe go to sleep around 2 or 3 in the morning. So um, uh, those people are, are, are having a hard time of it fitting into the 9 to 5 world. And so because what I find interesting there is to think uh, is uh, would those people then potentially be insomniacs themselves because they aren't uh, going with the body clock time the day night cycle as you mentioned the circadian yeah. rhythm well insomnia in their case would be a symptom only and okay. i think it's important not to confuse this type of situation with the situation of insomnia the night owl um can easily sleep a full night if he or she is given the opportunity to sleep whenever he or she wants to, right? And so where the problem comes in is in people who, okay, so they need to get up for an eight, eight o'clock class in the morning, or they need to get to work by seven o'clock, then that's a problem because they don't want to go to bed until two or three in the morning and they've got to get up at six or seven. That's not enough sleep. So there, there is a name for those type of disorders and they're called circadian rhythm disorders. And in the case of somebody who's getting up late in the morning and going to bed late at night, that is called delayed sleep phase syndrome. And there are a couple of, uh, therapies for that that are uh, unique to circadian rhythm disorders and they certainly wouldn't work for people diagnosed with insomnia disorder okay because that's why i find interesting thinking of night owls where people think i just don't go to i don't feel sleepy until very late um, mm -hmm. so i might as well just keep working through the nights and but then yeah they struggle to wake up in the morning um, right. and, and some family members might think, oh, you're struggling with insomnia, then you can't fall asleep, can you? And that's the kind of terminology that's used. Right. Well, yeah, there's, there's sometimes a confusion between insomnia, the symptom of insomnia, and a lot of different disorders have that same symptom, and the disorder of insomnia. And those are, those are oftentimes used interchangeably, but mm. in fact, uh, it's not the case, if, at least if you look into uh, the world of medicine. Yeah. Okay. That's good for people. To, I know, a lot, especially in the world of medicine, they have a definition of a word, but colloquially or, you know, within society, we, we sure. use those words loosely and it's Absolutely. not quite yes. as accurate. Yeah. So it creates yes. confusion. Yes. 
And someone might go to the doctor and then say, oh, I've got insomnia. And they think, no, no, that's not technically insomnia. So it's good for people to know that, I think. Well, and, and when uh, the general practitioner will, will take the, the history, um, one of the first questions he or she would ask would be, well, what time do you go to bed? And if the person consistently is saying 3 or 3.30 in the morning, then that kind of tips the doctor off that, oh, what this person has may not be insomnia. It may be a circadian rhythm disorder instead. Okay, but yeah, we're going to get on to remedies, and um, oh. I'll, I'll keep on to that to circadian thoughts in that part. Okay. Um, but before before we leave, sort of sleep quality, sleep quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to ask about the sleeping techniques out there. Like uh, quite a popular one is polyphasic sleeping. Mm-hmm. Have you come across that concept of just uh, sleeping in short bouts? At, Right, right. Um, I think probably any kind of sleep scientist would laugh you off the block if you thought, <laughs> if you mentioned that to them, because there's absolutely nothing about the way the body behaves that would um, suggest that polyphasic sleep would be a good thing for human beings. Um, you know, in some societies, okay, so um, actually, if you put people in... Um, in isolation from any kind of time cues, if you put them in a cave where there's no light or no telephones or no, you know, no, no indication of what time it is, um, what will happen is that their body clock will uh, show two dips in core body temperature. The first dip comes normally about an hour to three hours before normal wake-up time. And the second dip comes in the afternoon. You've maybe heard it called the circadian dip. That's the reason why, say, in the middle of the afternoon, you suddenly just feel like, oh, my gosh, I need a cup of coffee because you can't think of a name or remember a phone number or whatever. Um, That's not because you've eaten too big a meal at lunchtime. It's because your body temperature has fallen. And so the biggest dip in core body temperature is right before you wake up, pretty much. The second biggest dip is during the middle of the day. And so some people, because we tend to want to or tend to be sleepy and the most sleepy during the times when our temperature is low, there have been some cultures where the afternoon siesta has been part of the day, a normal part of the day. And so if we can call that polyphasic sleep, there is some legitimacy to saying, okay, uh, that, that, that is a suitable sleep-wake situation for human beings. But anything like sleeping for two hours and being up for five hours and sleeping for two hours and being up for five hours, it just wouldn't be possible because, um, as I say, when we're most inclined to sleep is when our body temperature is down. And it's only down really two times during the 24-hour cycle. That's fascinating. Yeah, because people would think of the Mediterranean or hot climates where people take a siesta like the two to three o'clock in the afternoon. And right. um, And and, but I guess some some people also think, oh, if I have a nap in the afternoon, then I can't sleep at night, and that's a problem too. But um, if you've got a a strong circadian rhythm, a strong body clock, then 
you you should actually still be able to get a good quality sleep when you do fall asleep when it gets dark again. Um, well, I, I think that people are still doing research on naps. Um, one thing does seem to be true is that uh, what like a ten a ten minute or twenty minute power nap or something can increase your alertness then later in the day. But if you have insomnia, one of the recommended uh, therapies is called sleep restriction. And you're, you're, it's suggested you're advised to steer clear of naps, at least during the, the therapeutic process, because you don't want to fall into deep sleep during a nap. Now, normally you wouldn't if you kept the nap less than, say, 30 minutes. But um, but during therapy, anyway, you're asked to refrain from napping. Okay. So if we then maybe look into some of the causes of insomnia, is in, is, are we born with insomnia? Or is insomnia that can, is something that can develop at any stage due to a variety of reasons? Well, that that is a hard question to answer. I mean, uh, they are starting to find certain genes that are associated with insomnia. Um, it does seem to be that certain people are predisposed to have insomnia. Just stepping away from insomnia for a minute and going back to circadian rhythm uh, rhythm disorders. Those disorders are a hundred percent genetically based. As for insomnia, I think probably the um, the most widely accepted view is that there are certain genetic there's a certain genetic predisposition, but then also it 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 uh, it's also affected by your experience, and it may be affected somewhat more by early childhood experience. Um, in any case, it seems that any type of severe stress, for example, losing a family member or losing a job or something like that, can precipitate insomnia. And then once it's going, some people are very resilient. And when the stress has sort of died away, they're able to return to sleeping in a normal way. But some of us are not able to do that. And once you realize you are sleeping poorly, you might start to worry about that. And then that worry sort of triggers arousal in your body. And before you know it, you're on this vicious circle of, uh, of um, basically worry about sleep, anxiety about sleep and um, physiological arousal. And so that's going to tend to perpetuate your insomnia. Mm, yeah, it's very true. And that's where you were mentioning the hyper arousal, arousal theory, I believe. Of insomnia. Yeah, yes. And, and I guess that a lot of people might be able to relate. You listen to this and what you said was stressful events where the loss of a, a job, um, bankruptcy, a divorce, oh, yes. um, a bereavement, okay. and and people then, as you mentioned, they, they're thinking, they're mentally thinking of a problem or they can't, and that's probably something they will say, I just, I can't turn my mind off. And so, because mm -hmm. I, I can't turn my mind off, I can't fall asleep. And then I struggle to sleep and I just mm -hmm. lay there thinking of stuff. And that 
is sort of taking you along into that spectrum of insomnia, would you say? Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. That, uh huh. That seems to be how it develops. Now, I think s- some sleep experts would argue that it's perhaps more physiological than we realize at this time. But I don't think anybody would argue that it is solely based in biology. I think there is a combination of biology, uh, psychological uh, factors, environmental factors, and and uh, sort of acute situational factors mm. that are involved. Yeah. So when we're looking at the causes, as you mentioned, there's different components to this that someone could assess and like anything in, in health, if, if they all click in the right place for your personal physiology, your N right. equals one, then it might activate the, the trouble sleeping. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay. So then if we sort of look at, uh, well, before, before we go on to remedies, um, one, the one point I liked in an interview I was listening with you was talking about coffee, you know, oh, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, I guess that's a common thing too, where people say, Oh no, you just drink too much coffee in a day and that's why you can't go to sleep at night. You've got a good answer to that. Well, um, it turns out that it's not so simple, really. Um, people who are, are predisposed to insomnia are do tend to be pe- people who are more sensitive to coffee than others. And by the way, that is also another thing that is completely genetically determined, your sensitivity to coffee. Um, you know, some people can drink it after dinner and have a perfectly fine night of sleep afterwards. Um, but, but you know, coffee is like other drugs. It enters your system and it affects you, uh, increases your arousal and alertness for a certain period of time, and then your body starts to dispose of it. And it has a half-life of about five or six hours on average. But that can vary depending on your age and uh, mostly depending on your age, but but also depending on other things, such as if you're pregnant or um, if you, I believe, smoke, actually. In any case, um, coffee, when it's drunk in the morning, is often not a problem for people with insomnia because by the time nighttime rolls around, your body has long processed that coffee and it's out of your system. Mm-hmm. However, um, it's, it's, it's really, uh, maybe I should just leave it at that because it is very, very um, an individual type of thing. One thing I will say, though, is that um, you shouldn't be drinking too much coffee and you certainly should try to keep your coffee drinking to the earlier part of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the common, uh, I guess, advice a lot of people would give is don't drink it too late in the day because if yeah. you think of it, the point there is if you think of it chemically that it's got a half-life, so it's still it's active for a period of time in your system. So, right, right. Even though it's interesting how I've got family members who, who actually find if they drink a cup of coffee, then they sleep better. So, um, and well, it's, sure, one of those, but- it's one of those strange things again. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a genetic thing, I think. Yeah. Completely. So that sort of takes me into the remedy side of things now. When we're talking about chemicals and half life, so uh, if, if maybe we should we should start there as common sleep remedies. So people struggling to sleep, 
um, and they've gone to their doctor, they probably are, the first thing that the reason they go to their doctor is probably because they're looking for a sleep aid, like a sleeping pill of some sort. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, sort of comments about sleeping pills for people who struggle to sleep with insomnia? Right now, that's not considered the first line treatment for people who have insomnia. There's something I mentioned it earlier, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that is uh, sort of a a treatment uh, comprising several different components. Um, there are some changes in habits that are recommended. Um, something called sleep restriction therapy, which sounds onerous, actually, to people with insomnia. But, well, I can tell you that it was one of the things that has helped me the most. There's something called stimulus control therapy, which basically um, tells you that you need to stay out of the bedroom and out of the bed except during sleep. Um, there are also cogn- there's also a cognitive component to cognitive behavioral therapy, where things like um, misguided beliefs about sleep or fears um, are are basically challenged, and so you are you you come out with a more realistic and more positive frame of mind after you undergo this therapy. And then relaxation is a part of it as well. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a treatment that comprises several different components, but it is known to be very effective for people who have insomnia. Um, in fact, I think the, the figures go run about 70 to 80 percent of the people who go through cognitive behavioral therapy actually end up with uh, improvements to their sleep. Oh, fantastic. So that's already a great tip for people who are struggling is not to think of, I need a sleeping pill, um, is actually to inquire about cognitive behavioral therapy um, as the yeah. first line attempt. As I'm, uh, as I understand it, it's not widely available. And I don't know, I, I think you're in the UK, and I'm not sure how widely available it is there. Mm. But uh, normally, it can be administered by trained doctors, nurses, therapists there are many different types of people who get training in it okay yeah i did like your point about um restricting your sleep so as a as someone who's who's gone through insomnia and suffers with it is that what happens where people would just want to go lay down but they're not sleeping but that's a problem that you're just laying down and so what the part of the behavioral training is to say don't even just go do that you need a it's sort of like you need to train yourself that when you go lay down in the bedroom, that's sleep time, not just rest. Yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, one strategy that some people will adopt when they see they're not sleeping well is to actually go to bed earlier. Well, that's just going to exacerbate the insomnia. Um, sleep restriction, basically, what you're trying to do is you're trying to start by uh, staying in bed only the amount of time that you're actually asleep. When you're in the bed, you want to be sleeping okay. and don't want to be awake. So um, it's, a ch- it's a therapy where you restrict your sleep in the beginning rather more than you would choose to. But slowly, as your sleep becomes more regular and as you find yourself going to sleep, exactly when your head hits the pillow 
that sleep window, that very narrow sleep window, starts being widened a bit. And eventually, as you go through the process, you basically come and find what is your ideal amount of sleep, your ideal sleep window. And if you can continue to observe that sleep window every day or as many days as possible, then your sleep uh, becomes much, it, it becomes much easier to fall asleep and stay asleep through the night. Interesting. So, yeah, that's a great uh, little health tip for people there. You, I'm just thinking, so it is a good thing in that case where you, you, when you're struggling with sleep is to set a clock in the morning, but more because that's you're going to keep yourself consistent when you wake up in the day and there's going to be a consistency for going to bed at the day and, and you've got to think of it as a window. So don't don't make it too long, otherwise it's inefficient. Right, exactly. You'll you'll find yourself struggling to fall asleep, and you're all you'll also find yourself waking up a lot during the middle of the night, which is not you don't want any of those things. Um, but I would say that um, what is most important, really, I think, is uh, establishing a a time, a rise time, a time that you're going to be getting up in the morning, and really sticking with that. Sometimes it's hard to do, but what you need to do is to be awake for a long enough time to build up enough sleep pressure that you're going to fall asleep right away and stay sleeping through the rest of the night. So keeping to a firm rise time is possibly the most important thing you can do for your sleep if you suffer from insomnia. And would you tweak it according to the natural daylight um, hours according to the season that you're in? Did, would that would you shift it? Now that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> um, in your own personal I'm not, experience, I'm, sure, I'm not sure what what sleep experts would say about that. I I'm I'm sort of of the opinion that you you adhere to a pretty rigorous same get up time throughout the year, but. Uh, you may be naturally inclined to want to do it differently. Well, that's your choice, I guess. Um, let's say you feel you'd like to get up earlier in the summer because there's more light there. Well, fine. But you want to keep your sleep window. Um, you want to adjust your bedtime then accordingly. So if you're a six-hour sleeper, you don't suddenly want to be going to bed at the same time you would during the winter time. During the summertime, you're going to adjust that. You're going to go backwards with that. So instead of going to bed at midnight, say you're going to you're going to stay up until one, something like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I, as we've talked a little bit about already, is body clock and circadian rhythms. And I don't know, I'm I'm in that place right now. I'm always thinking of circadian thoughts too when it comes to things and and how it is shifting and seasonal and depending what latitude you are in the world. So uh -huh. yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, um, but when we're coming then more into sort of remedies here, so we talked talked about that. Um, but but I think light and food is another another two other points I want to talk about. And so, Pete, another thing that's affecting people's quality is um, being exposed to too much blue light at night. Would you agree? Yes, that can have an effect on sleep. Yes, and um, that might be especially bad for someone who is a night owl. Um, 
but it also might affect people with insomnia mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Yeah, actually, um, uh, Ivan, who's my podcast editor, he'll be listening to this right now. And he was, ah. and he has a tendency to work later in the night. And, um, what, what, uh, he's found really good was when he, um, in, I, I had, uh, another guest on who's devised software that makes your screen go, uh, red when it's nighttime. Yes. Uh -huh. And so, um, he found, because he's on the computer and he found, wow, that actually helped him sleep when he, when the screen automatically went amber and red. So it, sure. it, it was, a, it, he felt, yeah, he could sleep a bit better with that. It, it allowed him to fall back to sleep again. So. Sure. Sure. I mean, uh, they do know that it's the shorter wavelengths, the blue light that are are suppressing the secretion of melatonin and we want to have melatonin being secreted at night because that helps us stay asleep through the night mm -hmm. and uh, whereas yes yeah, whereas red light doesn't seem to be to do that yeah um and then food have you even looked at food timing when it comes to sleep quality have you come across any of that i i, I think that the here, the, the the research that I've seen has basically centered on regularity as far as insomnia goes. And so um, <clears throat> there is a debate, for example, uh, another remedy that I've found very helpful for me is exercise. And whether you should exercise in the morning, whether you should exercise in the afternoon, whether in the evening and so forth. Um, I think that it's an individual thing when when is the exercise time that would be best for each person um likewise meals um i think that basically anybody who's done research on meal times has found that it seems to be the regularity of the meal times as opposed to early meal times or late meal times or something like that 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 seems to promote better sleep and likewise with exercise it's the regularity of it that seems to be helpful to sleep and you mentioned melatonin too Mel melatonin supplements are very popular do you have an opinion mm -hmm. on them well um they're they're not generally prescribed for people with insomnia because um those are, are called, they're not sleeping pills, they're called chronobiotics. Those are, are helpful for people who have circadian rhythm disorders okay. and okay. also helpful, they may be helpful for people who do shift work. They're also help, uh, uh, melatonin is also helpful for jet lag, but it typically won't be prescribed for people with insomnia. That's interesting. So someone with insomnia might not feel the benefits of taking a melatonin supplement. It's my understanding that the only people who might uh, a person might um, might not be secreting n enough melatonin, um, and that might happen if you were an older adult and your pineal gland had partially calcified, for example. But I don't believe this is a situation that's very common. But if if that were the case, if you were, if your body had ceased to produce enough melatonin, then taking a supplement would be recommended by a doctor. Okay. 
But uh, melatonin is, is not a sleeping pill. It will change the timing of your sleep, but it won't change your ability to get to sleep or stay asleep, okay. basically. Okay. It just comes back to the timing effect again. Yeah. 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 And other sleep aids, I'm thinking of blackout curtains, wearing sleep masks, earplugs, uh, white noise. People, there's other sort of stimuluses that people look to help them fall asleep. Um, I'm sure right. you've experimented with lots of different ones too, yourself. Well, I just know that I'm very sensitive to noise. And so most of the time I'm wearing earplugs at night. But I've also met people who are sensitive to light. And so I've heard people wrap their heads in towels or put, you know, light blocking curtains on their windows. Um, I think you need to, I, I think it's pretty clear. <laughs> people can pretty clearly identify those types of, uh, you know, factors that are that type of stimulation from the environment that is a problem for them and, and take some steps to, uh, you know, get rid of that. And even for someone with insomnia, again, these other environmental stimulants that you mentioned before when we were talking about the causes, and there's lots of different parts to this, that it's something even someone with insomnia could look to address is their, their, their sleep area and that it doesn't have too much light or any oh, light sure. or noise. Sure, yeah. that it's quiet. That can be hard, if you, especially if you don't have much money. Yeah. That could be hard to get a noise-free environment. And that's where the earplugs come in as a, as a quick, yes. yeah. That's right. Yeah. And white noise, any any sort of opinion on that on the the white noise effect? You know, I, I think I always tell people do whatever works. If that works for you, then great. Um I hate that stuff. <laughs> I can't I can't have any noise and so uh <laughs> Okay. I won't let my sister if I have to sleep in the same room. I won't let my sister put her white noise machine on. Yeah, because that is the thing where I, I'm just thinking of some people who find, oh, I'm struggling to sleep, so I'll go lay in front of the TV just so it's it's got just a noise or something, and that's what helps me drift yeah. off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it can help people drift off. Um, I used to play. I don't know, probably not in the UK, but. In the United States, uh, there was a nature program, program called Marty Stauffer's Wild America. And it was a nature program where there was kind of a naturalist who would come on and talk about all these different animals. And you'd see pictures of these animals. And um, that used to kind of be good for me. But, but you know, I, I think that um, – the best thing for people with insomnia is to realize that in the absence of any kind of uh, sleep aid like that, you can sleep if you make your sleep regular and, and, and have the right habits and have the right frame of mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I just see with our time, we're coming up on our recording time, but uh, with your, I want to talk a little bit about your book. Your, your book is... It's titled for insomnia, but anyone who's looking to even just optimize their sleep, they could get benefit from your book. I would say that anybody who has the symptom of insomnia and um, might either be diagnosed as insom with insomnia or with a circadian rhythm disorder. I have a whole chapter on that. Fantastic. Um, would would and also uh, people who. People could get benefit if they have a comorbid disorder, say depression or anxiety or something like that. 
um, those are the kind of people that I was hoping to reach with my book. Well, I think that's pretty, that's a lot of people actually <laughs> who, who would have yeah. that um, and who are struggling yeah. to sleep. Sure. Yeah. And you give a lot of helpful tips in there too and other resources, don't you? I do, yeah. Um, there are some online sources of help for sleep and there are some good books. I mean, I always recommend my own book for people, but I also recommend others. Mm -hmm. um, there is a good book called The Insomnia Workbook, another one called The Insomnia Answer. Uh, those are those are very helpful. Okay, fantastic. Um, yeah, I I think you've you've given us a real good education about sleep. Lots of aspects about sleep, from diagnosis to causes and symptoms and remedies. Um, yeah, we went through quite a bit today, and I, I love it that also we got to talk about body clocks and circadian rhythms. And uh, sorry that I, I maybe went on a bit with some some of that, but yeah, I, it's just something I've, I've got a real, real keen interest in. Um, uh, what are the best ways that someone can keep in contact with you or follow your work um, other than getting your book? Do you have uh, online social media have, or website that people I can have, go to? I have a website. It's called The Savvy Insomniac. And I I have, for the last five years, been blogging every week. So um, that is a probably the best way to get in touch with me and um, find out, you know, what I'm writing about these days uh, i do have a facebook page called the savvy insomniac and i'm on twitter it's at el mahar i would say that that would be the way people should should be in touch with what i'm doing okay so you're still keeping up to date is what i'm hearing too with sleep um by blogging oh, about lots of regular articles so people can keep up to date with where you're I'm going i'm going to now be changing the blog into an occasional blog maybe once a month but for five years now, I can hardly believe it's been that long. Wow. I have been writing weekly blogs. About sleep and, and anything about, about sleep. sleep. insomnia. If you can believe anybody would do that. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's a great library resource then for anyone who wants to geek out a little bit more about insomnia right. then. <laughs> that's right. Thank you. All right. So, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on today and sharing all your knowledge um, and I really found it super useful. Okay, thanks so much for having me, Gary. I really appreciate this uh, opportunity. Yeah.